Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kitties. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, executive producer John Hughes speaks with David Schelzel of the Ocean Blue. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Here we are in 2020. And, you know, there's great debate out there about whether this is the new decade or the new decade starts next year. Either way, we hope you had a happy and healthy holiday season with your friends and family. Yeah. Did did you get, by any chance, Rich, did you get any gifts that had the Rhino label on them? I feel like... I get gifts from Rhino all the time, so <laughs> I was... <laughs> well, you know, and you know what that leads to? Are you, are you implying that we're Rhino Insiders? We are happy to announce a brand new Rhino program called Rhino Insider. And Dennis, you may ask, what is Rhino Insider? Hey, Rich, what is Rhino Insider? Glad you asked. Rhino Insider is our new loyalty program for music fans in the United States and the District of Columbia, legalese. It's free to join, and you earn points by partaking in activities and connecting with us. So then you can use your points to redeem for rewards. So here's how you earn points. You engage with Rhino on social media. You can tell us what kind of music you love. Read articles on rhino.com. And, of course, our favorite, listen to Rhino podcasts. Watch videos. Make purchases on rhino.com. And you get points for all of this, which then you can redeem for cool Rhino swag and discounts. You can get U-turn turntables, vinyl, box sets, exclusive content, and discounts on music at the Rhino store and much more. And here's a very cool thing. The first 100 Rhino Insiders to earn 15,000 points win a Woodstock Back to the Garden 5LP box set. Whoa. Pretty cool. And Dennis... I think that you and I are both pretty sure that most of the people listening to this are already doing a lot of these things that they can earn points by. So we encourage you all out there to sign up and get credit for them and claim your loot because you're already doing it anyway. If you're if you're obsessed with Rhino, this is a no-brainer. So, Dennis, you may ask, how does one become a Rhino Insider? I do ask that. You go to rhinoinsider.com and click the Become a Rhino Insider button. You'll get an email asking you to confirm your email address, and once that's done, you can start earning points. So again, join Rhino Insider at rhinoinsider.com. 
Today on the Rhino Podcast, executive producer John Hughes got to sit down with David Schelzel from The Ocean Blue and discuss the band's career arc, their early albums on Sire, the albums that came after that, and what they're up to today. Did you know Seymour Stein loved the band so much he gave them a three-album deal and they were teenagers in 1988? That must have been so exciting. Can you imagine being a young musician? You've got your band with your high school friends, and you get signed to maybe the coolest label of the 80s. And the record went right on Club MTV with the one and only downtown Julie Brown being a fan. And then hit number two on the alternative charts, their first single. And their first three albums were on Sire, and that's why we have this podcast today. And their new album is called Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves. And that, I mean, for people who don't know this band, it's going to blow them away because the music was so of its time and yet timeless. It's one of those great bands that maybe flew under your radar, but you're going to really enjoy listening to this music because I guarantee you it's going to sound familiar. Let's go to John Hughes and hear his conversation with the Ocean Blue. I know who you are, David. Why don't you tell everybody listening who you are? I'm David Schelzel. I'm the singer and songwriter for The Ocean Blue. So The Ocean Blue comes out of Hershey, Pennsylvania in the, well, we would know it in the late 80s, but when did you guys start there? So we met when we were in junior high, Mm -hmm. high school, middle school, and we started making music together pretty early on but really didn't play out or do you know anything publicly until we were late in high school. And that would have been, you know, 86, 87. Was it possible to do that back then? I mean, that's, it's crazy if you think about kids in high school now, starting a band and playing out. Well, it was crazy then too. I mean, we could not play in, in a lot of clubs when we were underage. And then those that we could, there were a lot of tricks you know we we couldn't we, we got sequestered to the dressing room you know we couldn't go out in areas where they're serving alcohol so it was a little tricky and we really wanted to play all age clubs and there weren't that many so when does sire records enter the picture for you guys after we had been sort of being serious as a band we got ourselves a manager in new york he's a guy that had ties to the area we're from south central pennsylvania we started working on some demos of our songs and we had been playing out for about a year, which we really hadn't done up to that point in time. Some of us were still in high school. Some, a few of us had just graduated, I think. But we did this, these demos of our, of our early songs, and our managers started to shop those around. Who was managing you at the time? A guy named Peter Friedman. Yeah. Really interesting guy. You know, as the years have gone by, I have more and more appreciation for him and what he did for us. He sadly died about... 15 years ago, I think. Mm. But a great manager, really loved our band, totally supported us, and uh, made a lot of things happen for us. He was a real key to our success. And he was young. He had just moved to New York. He had a lot of young friends in the music business, a guy who worked at SBK EMI, Mm. Danny Keaton, who was very instrumental. 
Peter brought Danny to see us play in Philadelphia, opening up for friends of ours in the Innocence Mission. But Danny really liked us. And he's like, I, I want to sign those guys to, to a developmental deal. And we'll, we'll work together and shop the band's stuff around. And so that's what happened. Peter and Danny, and then Danny's boss, Deirdre O'Hare at SBKMI, and our lawyer shopped the demo tapes around. And Seymour was immediately interested. Seymour Stein from Seymour Sire Stein. Records. Yeah. But it's interesting, you could have ended up on SBK. Because <laughs> they ended up having their own label in the early 90s with like Jesus Jones and things like yeah, that. Yeah, they did. They did. Thankfully, it was before that really came about. And thank I shouldn't say thankfully. But, I mean, Sire was where we wanted to be. It now, why was, is that? Well, it was the absolute coolest label in the 80s for, for America. Seymour was signing super interesting bands. Bands from England that we loved, but American bands. People who were making great records mm-hmm. and you know we're being played on college radio you know the new wave punk rock stuff of the day and so you know when i looked at my collection of music i mean half of it easy was on sire records i can remember you know just you and i were talking earlier about our reissues on vinyl mm-hmm. on sire it was really important for us to use the sire imprint because I just have that memory as a teenager, you know, getting out my Aztec camera record or my <laughs> Echo and the Bunnyman record yeah. or the Smiths record. And there was that Sire logo. And to be on that label was, was really, was our goal. So we were ecstatic when Seymour expressed interest, and there were a lot of other labels too. Like who? Can you remember any of them? I'm curious. <laughs> I sure can. I've got a Clive Davis story if you want to. Oh, I love a Clive <laughs> Davis story. Of course. So one of the bands we really liked at the time was a band called The Church. Mm-hmm. And The Church had recently signed with Arista, and Arista was trying to branch out into alternative music or whatever it was, the music you know that we were making. And that the church was was one of their signings, and the A&R guy that had signed them was really interested in the Ocean Blue, and he's like, you know, I think you guys just be great. Our label's really going in this direction. Yeah, we're more of an R&B label historically, but you know, we we want to be here and now too. And so they set up a private showcase for us for Clive Davis in New York, rented out a rehearsal studio space. I remember Kiss was rehearsing next door <laughs> of all things. We got to meet. Gene Simmons, as he was on the payphone, we set up in this very dark, small rehearsal space and sat around for about a half hour waiting for Clive Davis to just kind of show up. And he arrives by limo, completely silent. He walks into the room, sits down and looks at us with expectation. We're just standing up there. So we, <laughs> we play we play a song. And in the first chord, my string breaks. Uh-oh. And I'm so nervous. I don't know what to do. And so we muddle through that song nervously. And, you know, it's Clive Davis sitting like, you know, where you are from me. Right. He's like right there and you're playing a song. And you're 19? Uh, at the, If that, I was, yeah, I was probably 18. 
Did you have any idea who he was? Uh, not like I do today. Yeah. But I, you know, he, I kind of knew he was the president of this label and he's a legend and stuff. I don't remember if this is true, but it felt like he was wearing sunglasses. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. But, you know, he didn't, he wasn't like, hey guys, how's it going? He was just, just silence. Yeah. He sat down and, and you know, expedite. And we played, then we played, a, we played two songs, Myron off our first record, and we played Between Something and Nothing. And Between Something and Nothing finished. He got up. He, he sort of nodded his head and he left. Mm. And that was it. And the anarchy was like, oh, that, that was actually good. He stayed for both songs. <laughs> he was trying to put a good Jeez. spit on it. And we, we did get an offer from them. I mean, mm -hmm. and we got an offer from RCA, Warner Brothers, interestingly enough, as well as Seymour and Sire, Columbia, and maybe a few others. I can't remember. But those, those I can remember. It's a little bidding war. It was. It was. We were really, really fortunate. Was it cash bidding war or was it more what you guys wanted control? That's a great question. I mean, it involved both, mm -hmm. but what was really important for us was to find a home, uh, a label that would support us through not just one record, but multiple records. Mm -hmm. And that's really where Seymour was smart. He didn't offer us the most money, but he offered us a three-firm deal. Right. So if we would sign with him, we knew we had at least three records with Sire. And you know, most bands in those days were one or maybe two. And, and so that was extraordinary. And plenty of money to make a great record. I mean, it seems mm -hmm. like an obscene amount of money now when I think about it. John Porter. Yeah. I and, mean, Smiths, right? Yes. Well, and that was the great thing about signing with Seymour because he had, and his artists had relationships with all these great producers. Mm -hmm. It was Seymour's suggestion that we go to London and we work with an English producer because we had been so influenced by English bands. And when he su suggested John Porter, we, we nearly... Um, plots. <laughs> Is that the word? <laughs> I'll let you fill in the blank. But we were ecstatic. It was super cool. And, and just the fact that John would listen to this stuff and then he ended right. up liking it and wanting to work with us was extraordinary. How much did you learn from him being in the studio? So much. I mean, he was... What, people that work with him tend to come away with it like, oh, now I know how yeah. the studio works. Absolutely. That was true. No, I mean, we were so green going into that record. Never really had a major studio experience. John was one of the kindest, nicest people I've ever met. Really an encourager kind of producer, uh, but also like an, an educator too, like a good teacher would be or a mentor. And so, you know, we talked a lot about how guitars are recorded. He's the first guy that ever showed me how to do multi-tracking guitars and mm. panning acoustics and how you can use a distorted electric for a really beautiful sound that's not necessarily like hard rock. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked a lot about the recordings he did for the Smiths. We were working in the same studio where How Soon Is Now uh, was recorded. I mean, I played in the same amps, mm -hmm. some of the same amps that Johnny used. You know, we talked about this charming man. And, you know, that was just, yeah, I mean, even if we weren't making our own record, that would have been worth the price. You say you go to the UK to record this with the UK producer. It brings up something interesting. You guys really got mistaken for a British band when you first came out a lot, right? Oh, yeah. And did that bug do. you or does that bug you? It used to. Yeah, really? It used to. Yeah, I, 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 and I, I don't even know why anymore. I guess 
when we started, I really wanted to be uh, known for who we were and, mm-hmm. and being unique. And for where we are from, we were very you, unique. You had some pride in Hershey because you featured <laughs> in your videos and everything, right? That's true. I think it was just more we wanted our own identity. Okay. You know? And I think, frankly, most of the bands we love would say the same thing. But now it doesn't bother me. If you think about music as such a universal thing, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't like music because of where it's from. You like it because you like it. And maybe where it's from is a part of why you like it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, our influences were were around the world and particularly England. Yeah. So the album comes out. Between Something and Nothing gets some play on MTV. 120 minutes at that point probably, right? Yep. Not quite alternative nation yet. Right. And it gets to number two on the modern rock charts. You guys are sailing. Yeah. How was the reception back then? What do you remember? Do you, was this when the Laugh Tour happened or? It was before. Before. So before we did the Laugh Tour, uh, which was. Yeah. Tell for, us about the Laugh Tour. Yeah. So that was, so Sire put together a big tour with basically three acts that were releasing records that year. That was 1990. Our record came out, I think, fall of 89. So it was the Mighty Lemon Drops mm-hmm. and the Ocean Blue and John Wesley Harding. You know, it was our first big tour with tour buses, big venues, and that sort of thing. Before that, though, in the fall, we did our own headlining tour. And it was on that tour where our Between Something and Nothing and then later Drifting Falling were breaking as mm-hmm. singles on Modern Rock Chart. And we were getting airplay on 120 Minutes. I can remember we were at a hotel in Miami and they had told us, you know, your video is going to be on 120 Minutes tonight. And so we we turned it on in How Soon Is Now was was playing and I was like this is one of my favorite songs and I was like ah and then the next song was Drifting Falling and oh, I was wow. like oh. I felt like yeah it was extraordinary did so yeah did you have a Dave fun. Kendall moment where he actually said your <laughs> name like Ocean Blue yeah he did <laughs> exactly that's good <laughs> you may So that that headlining tour is happening, and, and you guys are doing well, and you get on this laugh tour. What the laugh tour was like? College campuses? Am I remembering that right? There were a lot yeah. of college campuses. We were, we were reminiscing about that. I think when we played San Diego and San Francisco, that well, no, it was San Diego. It was it was a campus there. Mm. Yeah, I would say about a third to almost half of that tour was on college campuses, which was great because that's really where our fans were in college mm-hmm. and high school, and of course we were that age too so it it really felt like a good place to play and then you know small theaters big clubs kind of a thing so what was the road like for the ocean blue for a bunch of 18 19 year olds on a college tour yeah i you know i confess i i didn't like it all that much it was it was really cool for a couple of weeks and then it got really hard it wasn't so much that I was homesick, but it just really felt like I was on the campaign trail mm. or I was on a military campaign, you know. And it, is, I mean, you know what touring's like. I mean, it's a little bit like that. You're, you know, you play a show, you're done, you get on the bus, you go to sleep, you wake up in the next city, you do it all over again. It becomes, can become really repetitive. And so it was a little, little tough, honestly. But along with that, it was wonderful too because people were buying our records. We were playing for crowds that were 
super enthusiastic and excited to see us. They pay you to travel and you <laughs> sing for free, right? Yeah, that part of it was really good. I love first album does well then you kind of take the reins for the second album cerulean right you produce Producing, yourself yeah. how, my first question is how did you convince the record company to let you produce your second record yourself seymour and howie klein the the gm uh were really cool about giving bands artistic freedom mm-hmm. i mean i think they would try to prevent you from driving off a cliff with what you wanted to do but seymour was always like no you know the artist knows more than anybody how they should sound. And we did work with a great engineer, actually two engineers. We worked with a great recording engineer and a great mixing engineer. But the production, we did. You know, there was definitely a certain sound I wanted that record to have. I wanted to have a mood and an atmosphere. And, you know, he really respected that and uh, gave us a lot of freedom. I, I was, when I think about it now, it's extraordinary. Is it fair to say that the Cocteau Twins were a bigger influence on that record, or am I projecting? No, it's fair to say. (laughs) And and just to expand it, I mean, after we did the first record, I really started getting, I discovered and started getting into just the whole 4AD Mm -hmm. catalog. So Cocteau Twins for sure, but, you know, the... Their project Moon and the Melodies, um, you know, Dead Can Dance, right. uh, This Mortal Coil, just the art, the vibe, the whole atmosphere and space. I mean, maybe, I don't know if that's dream pop or what it is, but that sound. And of course, no, nobody's like the Cocteau Twins. They're, they're a thing unto themselves mm-hmm. and they're beautiful and I don't, I don't think we sound anything like them. But that element of space and atmosphere and haunting beauty. I really wanted to go after that. There's a real Robin Guthrie effects pedals stacked on top of each other sound on that record. Absolutely. And you know, that's there. I mean, there were, you know, my, my big guitar heroes are uh, Robin, of course, but before him, the edge and Mm -hmm. Will Sargent and Johnny Marr and particularly the edge and Will Sargent. I mean, lots of reverb, Mm -hmm. lots of big sounds, not flashy solos so much. And those atmospheres I was really into. And when I heard Robin's work in that, that time, I was just transfixed, transfixed. You're not going to remember this, but we met in 1993 at Peabody's Down Under in Cleveland, Ohio, (laughs) and I was backstage, and I asked you about this record, and I told you it was my favorite of the three that were out at that time, and you told me, yeah, this one almost broke up the band. (laughs) And I remember you saying that. Is that an accurate quote, or is that how you were feeling Beneath the rhythm and sound? Or Cerulean? Cerulean. Yeah. 
Yeah, it did. I think I was probably more strong-willed on that one than mm-hmm. any other record. The guys that I started the band with, and Steve in particular, our keyboard player and sax player. Steve Lau. Steve Lau, mm-hmm. right. I mean, we were all best friends growing up, and, and I think on the first record, there was a lot of collaboration. I would bring a song to the band, but we would work many things out in rehearsal mm-hmm. in Poppy's basement, basically, Bob's at Bob's house. And But on the second record, I really demoed up most of that on my own on my four track and brought it to the guys and said this is the way it's going to be and i think that you know as i think about it now very naturally probably created some friction and Mm -hmm. steve was also getting into i mean you think about the early 90s you know the sort of what's rave stuff like like, like, madchester yeah yeah, exactly exactly, and steve was really into that and then shortly after that electronic music which Mm -hmm. i totally dig but it wasn't like what i wanted the ocean blue to be and so i think we had more of these artistic tensions within mm-hmm. the band in making that record. And, you know, listen to that record, there's no sax on it. Right. Some of the keyboards are stuff that I did or Rob did, our drummer. So I think, you know, there was there was some tension there. But it ended up being a bigger record than the first record. Yeah. I think yeah. that's right. Well, you would know. <laughs> yeah. Percent. Yeah. I mean, I feel like both those records, yeah, I think they, they eclipsed the third record that we did mm-hmm. in terms of sales. Yeah. Control that gets a lot of MTV play. Yeah. So and and Cerulean, the title track, and even Mercury. You had working three singles now, and mm-hmm. you're getting to a critical mass. Ripped into, then pasted back again, then crumpled up inside, then tossed aside. Ignore that. It feels so And then we hit between the rhythm and sound. Is that where cash registers started? Uh, uh, the little dollar signs started appearing in record company executives' <laughs> pupils. Yeah, I think the goal with that record though was to really sort of see if you could we could break beyond just modern rock, mm-hmm. right? And so Sublime was the big single off that. We did a big budget video in Iceland, which they took it to top forty. Yep, top forty radio. We had regular MTV airplay, not mm-hmm. just the M- one twenty minutes. But I think we were there were a lot of cross currents starting to happen within the music business at that point, and certainly within the the genre that we were plugged into, the modern rock thing. I mean, you and I were talking earlier today about Nirvana's record and and how modern rock kind of became mainstream and also right. shifted to more of a Seattle sound than say maybe a UK sound. And so beneath the rhythm and sound is it's not a sort of grungy, angry record. It's a pop record. If you ask me to today. It's not just what you think It grows outwards and
But it's interesting, you know, we were talking, Nirvana breaks, and all of a sudden, all these bands that had been, you know, college rock, using air quotes, all of a sudden were all over MTV, REM, yeah. and, you know, I'm, I'm blanking on other examples right now, but you guys should have been the beneficiary of that as well, and it didn't quite happen. Is it because you think it's a too poppy of a record and not as angsty? I have no idea why. <laughs> Music is a mysterious thing mm -hmm. and why things happen and why things don't, you know, there's not often a correlation between quality and success. And I'm not saying that we were really quality and we didn't have success. I don't mean that so much, but it's just mysterious. Right. I mean, if you look at REM, I think REM has always been probably more of a rock band that mm -hmm. could, that could kind of shift more to what was happening in the nineties. The ocean blew a little bit more subtle, mm -hmm. a little bit more poppy and atmospheric. Yeah. I just don't think that was a record that was, um, uh, you know, right for the times. Well, let's talk about your fan base. What, how would you describe your fan base if you had to? I think we have some amazing fans, mm -hmm. really passionate, really dedicated. And I'd say this having just played a show last night to a bunch of them here in Los Angeles and, and they're just great. I mean, it was mm -hmm. overwhelming and it's really touching to talk with people, you know, before, after the show who are like, you hear how much your music has meant to them. And so we have a very dedicated fan base and it's, it's really deep in that sense. And it's all, but it's also really wide. So we have fans all over the world. Um, but we can't necessarily pay play for, you know, several thousand people in every city in the world. Right. But I think because of our years on Sire and the tremendous amount of support we had from the label and all the radio success, the MTV stuff, there's a lot of people who know who we are, a surprising number. It always shocks me. Just to put a pin in the sire years, when you look back, are you kind of amazed that you were part of this kind of fraternity? Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy, right? It is. And and it's frankly an, a privilege. You hear a lot of artists talk about horror stories mm -hmm. with their particularly major label record experiences. We don't have those horror stories. I mean, I, I might sound like a fanboy sitting here at Warner, but I mean, we were really well treated and really well supported. Seymour gave us a tremendous amount of artistic control and respect. Howie Klein was amazing in helping spearhead the promotions, um, great radio and product management. So I really look on that as a tremendous privilege. More to your question, I will forever be, I mean, to be on the same label as so many bands that are the most important bands to me as a, as a fan of music, mm -hmm. yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. The last Sire release was the Peace of Mind EP, yeah. which uh, is now available digitally for Thank you. the first time in, <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> for the first time in, uh, I don't know, since it was, since it was released, right? Uh, yeah. And if you haven't listened to it, I would encourage everybody to go because it's a great cover of The Smiths, There Is A Light That Never Goes Out, that you guys still covered, covered it last night. Yeah. But also a really great B-side called Sea of Green. Mm. Now, am I right in assuming that that's all you? In what sense, all me? Is that just you on Sea of Green playing everything, or am I wrong? I didn't play drums. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, well, 
um, it's almost like a, a home demo of you yeah, stacking things up. It kind of is yeah. on the guitar front because that song is mostly guitar. I mean, it's a big wall of mm-hmm. guitar sound. Yeah. You have this great experience on Sire, and then your fourth record, things come to kind of a head, and you leave, and you go to Mercury. Mm-hmm. You say you have no horror stories. Oh, <laughs> Is that yeah. true? <laughs> well, that's not entirely true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very sad to leave Sire. I, you know, in retrospect, I wish we had stayed, although I don't think it would have necessarily changed the trajectory of where we were going or what happened in the music business. What was the standoff? Money. Yeah. Yeah, money and in, in what we were going to do mm-hmm. on the fourth record. I think I really wanted to take the band in a in a different direction at that point. I was really into guitars and wanted a guitar record. Mm-hmm. So really started getting into probably British rock bands of the 60s and 70s and, you know, wanted a record that sounded like the Kinks or something. Right. But yeah, Seymour was we couldn't work things out. And so we left and we went to Polygram, Mercury, mm-hmm. and had a great A&R guy there. He was super supportive. And the president of the label, Danny Goldberg, I think, mm-hmm. you know, signed us. He was great. Those guys were great. And they gave us a huge, it was our biggest budget to make a record to date. And we worked with an American producer who was who was um, kind of the anti-John Porter. He wasn't like a wasn't like a kind <laughs> shepherding. Uh, he was more of a challenging postmodern producer. And he's a brilliant producer. Right. But it was a different experience. Mm. And I think, you know, we needed a bit of a kick in the butt to make a different kind of record. And I, for me, it's one of my favorite records. It sounds, I think it sounds very ocean blue. A lot of people think it's yeah, really it get, hard. It gets unfairly tagged as like your response to grunge, but listen to Slide. I, precisely. You know, listen to whenever you're around, when you, you know, I, I think people have this bad perception of this record. Well, yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I mean, it's a, it's a record I'm really proud of. And, you know, like you say, we, we still play several songs off of it. Slide is the mm-hmm. one we play the most. Ways and Means we play a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it sounds like the Ocean Blue. But yeah, that was a hard record to make. It took a long time. We worked with Dennis, the producer in Nashville and Oxford, Mississippi, and then in England for a while. We mixed it there. And there was a longer period of time between Beneath the Rhythm and Sound and the Peace and Light EP and then when that came out. Mm-hmm. And so we had lost a little momentum. And by the time the record came out, a lot of the people who had signed us at that label had lost their job. And that label didn't know who we were either. I mean, Mm -hmm. everyone here at Warner Brothers and Reprise who were working the record, they all knew who we were. They knew we had these hits and uh, on the, on the radio and on, on MTV. And so it was a different set of folks Mm -hmm. at Polygram and the record business was falling apart. They didn't even pony up for a video, did they? No, that there there was a video that we were all set to do, and at the last minute, the, pulled the plug on it. Yeah. So we never did a video for that record. So after See the Ocean Blue, 
you guys kind of take a break. Well, we started working on a new record, which mm-hmm. became Davy Jones's Locker. Right. And when it became apparent that things were really falling apart in the late 90s and Mercury really wasn't interested in doing the record, they would have done it, but it was not looking like a smart thing to do. We negotiated our way out of that deal. Oh, so you did not get dropped. You you guys... Technically, yeah. no. Okay. I mean, yeah. it, was, it was a mutual parting of the ways. Right. I had a year or two where I was really trying to figure out, do I really want to try to go out and get another major label deal or not? And mm-hmm. I was turning 30 and, you know, I want to go to grad school. So that's what I did. So what'd you do? What did you? I what'd went you to law school. school. Right. I ended up going to law school. Yeah. So I spent some years doing that. But my first year of law school, we got contacted from an indie, indie label, a guy named Skippy who had a record label called March Records. And he had worked with Peter, uh, our A&R guy at Polygram. And he was a fan. And he's like, man, you know, I know you guys work on this record, Davy Jones's Locker. I'd like to put it out. And I think we maybe even had put it together and we're starting to release it. Just wouldn't have been online at that point. I don't know, maybe mailing list or something right. like that. And he's like, I want to put that on my label and I want to book you guys some shows. And wow. I thought, mm, okay, yeah. <laughs> and so we started um, we started playing out and we released that stuff with him independently. And it was actually kind of successful. And then we thought, oh, I got inspired to work on another record, which was Waterworks. Mm-hmm. Ed Ronnie really started writing a lot of stuff that I thought was great. And I'm like, wow, you know, I don't have the time to like finish all this stuff. So Waterworks came out and it's kind of a half David, half Ed record right. after David Jones's. But David Jones's really is the lost Mercury Polygram record. Waterworks comes out, you guys start touring again, you end up in Peru of all places. <laughs> What's going on in South America? Yeah. Well, the extraordinary thing is, yeah, we, you know, we would get these offers from time to time to play different parts of the world, you know, Europe or Japan or Australia or something. And and then these offers started coming in from South America hmm. and in Peru in particular. And Peter, our drummer, was like, you know, boy, I'd really like to go to Machu Picchu. That'd be really <laughs> cool. And and, you know, the promoter was like, yeah, well, well, you guys come down here and play one show and then we'll take you around the country. And it was it was like, well, you know, the worst case scenario, it's a paid vacation. Right. right? So we go down there and discover, I mean, particularly the first time we were there, it was like we we're the Beatles. It mm. was just insane. And, um, you know, so we ended up playing for people in Lima uh, that were like probably three times as enthusiastic as the crowd you saw in Los Angeles. Wow. Last night. And of course, those guys were super enthusiastic. Yeah. I mean, really like you know, storming the van as we're coming into Mm. the venue and playing a show and they know every word, Mm. every word. And after the show, people signing me things to, or handing me things to sign and I'm seeing, mm, you know, seeing all these little bootleg cassettes and CDs of our records. And, you know, I'm realizing, wow, we have a legit following here. Mm. And that's really just when social media was starting and all of a sudden you're starting to see people connecting with you from South America and from Mexico. And so, yeah, we have we have a really huge part of our fan base in uh, Central and South America. Yeah. So you mentioned Paraguay. Yeah. That brings us to the new record, yeah. which is titled? The new record is Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves. And there's a song on it called Paraguay, My Love, yes. which is, I'm guessing, inspired from your trips down there. It is, yeah. Mama, smiling, yeah. 
So tell us about the new record. I think it sounds like a classic record. It could have been your fourth record. Oh, wow. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So the new record and the record we did before it, too, mm-hmm. Ultramarine, are, are records we've done entirely on our own. Didn't work with producers, outside producers or engineers or studios for that matter. These are records we've done in my home studio, Peter's home studio, Ed's home studio. And, you know, I write a song and I work it up in my studio and start sharing it with the guys. And we, we put the record together that way. The the advantages is I can work on it whenever I want and rework it till it's really there. The disadvantage is it takes a long time <laughs> to right. make a record that way because we're not sequestering ourselves away for weeks or months to do it and get it done. We're working on it bits at a time. But you also have another job that I don't think people know. (laughs) I do, yeah. You're an intellectual property lawyer. I am. Which is an awesome thing for an artist to be, is it not? Yeah. I mean, I I learned a lot about the law and about intellectual property in particular from being an artist. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from the time we signed our first deal with Warner Brothers, you know, figuring out what the contract means, figuring out the whole concept of copyright and trademark is is just really fascinated me like this ownership you have in the intangible and for me it's always been like a more of an organic connection to a song as a writer but then i realized the whole record business is built around copyright law so yeah i got really into that and i went to law school frankly just to kind of study that and figure it out and then it became a real cool practical thing for me to do too are people scared when they find out what you do (laughs) <laughs> I hope not. I'm not a very scary guy, I don't think. But uh, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So you guys are touring now. And could you have imagined that you would be doing this 31 years later? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. I thought I did. I thought that I would quit when I was 30, that yeah. I wouldn't do this anymore. But I don't know. When you love music and you make music, you it's a part of you. And I realize it just doesn't go away. And as long as I'm not making a complete fool of myself and... John, you tell me if I am. Okay? I will. <laughs> <laughs> then, then, yeah, I think I'll continue to do it. <laughs> and I thank you for being with us today, David. And My pleasure, you, John. If, yeah, if you have not gotten your copies of the classic Sire Ocean Blue albums, you can get them on oceanblue.com. Mm-hmm. And the new record's on there, too. And everything's on Spotify, your favorite streaming service. And when these guys come to your town, please go see them because you will not be disappointed. It is a great show, and it's not for everyone. I think you have to have a certain taste level. <laughs> How's that? Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, David. Thank you, John. It's fun. Well, Rich, I think that that conversation confirms the fact that if you were not into the Ocean Blues music, it's time to discover it in a major way. Yeah, I always love hearing from the people that created the music because it gives you their thoughts when they were creating it, when they were writing, recording. And I love having that inside viewpoint and that David Schelzel gave us. Great interview by 
executive producer John Hughes. Happy New Year, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in. And make sure to check out rhinoinsider.com. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved.